you know what, the world needs Paralympic sport because disability is a normal thing. There are millions, if not billions, of disabled people across uh, the world. Uh, and for so long, those people have not had the same opportunities that those without disabilities have had. Hello there and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham, and a happy new year to you if it's not too late to say that. Now, this podcast is about exploring the experiences, the concepts and insights from the world of high performance. And in each episode, I'll be speaking to people who have been there and done it, researched aspects of performance in real depth, or have supported others to aspire. And it's my hope that you'll find some interesting ideas here to develop your philosophies, work, and maybe how you live your life. So to this week's guest. Now I mentioned in the year 2020, it is Games Year. So we have the Olympic Games, the world's biggest sporting event. But in quick succession is the Paralympic Games, now the third largest sporting event. And I thought it'd be nice to start the year with an emphasis on the Para Games. Some quip that the Olympics is the warm-up or the test event for the Paralympics. Well, this week's guest is one of the greatest stalwarts and servants of the Paralympics, my good friend and close colleague, Nick Diaper. It's difficult to overstate the impact that Nick has had on the domain of disabled sport. From the days when, frankly, very few people were interested, through to it becoming not only respected, but revered. In this interview, I discuss with Nick what drew him to parasport, what resonated with him and what has endured. Nick shares his perspectives on why disability sport has caught the imagination of sports fans, general public and global audiences alike. He shares his own search for meaning amongst some of life's broader questions and why what he does can add value to society. Now, I cycle most weekends with Nick and he is a quality athlete, which I know to my own suffering. And this interview in many ways is like how he rides. Unfussy, humble, deliberate in delivering a powerful effect. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, there's a challenge here for me because we've spoken quite a lot professionally, but personally over the years. So we've spent a lot of time on the bike. And so the the challenge for me is this conversation has got to be novel in some way. (laughs) The, The fortunate thing is I've spent a lot of time behind you as opposed to alongside you (laughs) as we've, as we've gone up and down the country and around the East Midland lanes. That's probably a decent place to start, actually, about your capability, your trainability, all the things that I've cursed about you whilst we've been on the bike. Um, Can you give us a bit of a background as to your sporting background, where you grew up, how you kind of connected with sport? Sure. So I'm born in Kenya, lived in Kenya till I was 18, 19, so I spent most of my formative years in in Kenya. Um, amazing childhood, loved, loved growing up in Kenya and um, afforded me the opportunity to actually to have a very varied sport 
background. Um, went to a pretty good, pretty good school that had a lot of lot of sport opportunities. So um, played almost every sport there was at at, at school. Um, but for some reason, and I don't quite know why, swimming became one of the, the sports that I started to, um, I guess, show a bit more promise in com- compared to other sports. And um, um, when I was about 14, 15, had my first call up to to, to represent Kenya at um, Africa Junior uh, Swimming Championships. Um, and then a few years later, went on to represent Kenya at Commonwealth Games, Kuala Lumpur 98, uh, Manchester 2002, and um, a couple of world championships in there as well. I wasn't very good, mind you, but um, I, I loved I loved swimming. I loved the discipline. Um, I loved the competition side of things. Um, I love traveling the world and, and I never thought I would ever be able to represent my country in, in a sport. So to, you know, to, to wear the Kenya tracksuit and, and represent Kenya in that respect was, was amazing. Um, set a couple of national records, which have since been obliterated. And, and so I think my, my name no longer exists. Um, if you look through it through, through Kenya swimming, but, um, uh, yeah, I look back at that with a lot of pride, actually. So the experience of, Becoming an athlete uh, at an international level in Kenya, in Africa, in a country that perhaps doesn't have a tradition in in swimming, for example. How do you look back at that and compare what the experience that you went through uh, as a as a young international athlete compared with what you now see? Was it? I would imagine it, it's quite different. It is, and it's it's funny because I think there's a certain irony in being in what um, certainly in Kenya at the time was a minority sport. Nobody did it. I mean, you think of Kenya and you think of sport, you immediately think of of the amazing you know distance runners that that Kenya has, and um, you know Kenya's blessed with with a huge amount of sporting talent amongst so many different sports. But but athletics is the one that will spring to most people's mind, and so. You know, fast forward 20 odd years later, and I'm probably still in a field that is regarded as a, a minority sport, if you like, in, in terms of, of, of para sport. And then I'm sure we'll go into this in more detail later, but, um, I'm quite familiar with kind of being the underdog in, in sports that are, you know, either less well known or, or, or certainly don't receive the attention or, um, possibly some of the funding that, that, that other sports have. So, it's um, you know, looking back, it's there's a lot of parallels there with with I guess my own sporting background and being a champion in the sense of trying to promote and represent a movement or you know give something some energy so that it 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 can then uh, flourish off off the back of that. You say less well known. You, you fell into being a poster boy. Come on, tell us about that. Come on. <laughs> we promise this wasn't going to come up, Steve. It's going uh, it's, it's <laughs> to come me up. up here royally. Um, yeah, let's let's spend as little time on this as possible. But um, um, yeah, fortunately, there's no evidence of it. But I, I was part of a <laughs> I was part of a, a, a billboard campaign to promote Fanta when I was growing up in in Kenya, and um, the, the least said about that, the better. Fortunately, it was the days before internet, so there's there's no proof of it. <laughs> there's going to be somewhere. There's going to be a poster or a picture. Or it's going to be in the background. Does someone take a, a, a photo by the, the side of a freeway or something? Probably, but I don't know if anyone has ever, ever... Well, I've not seen one, that's for sure. So <laughs> It will happen one day. Um, so, amazing experience there. It sounds like a rich, diverse experience that that you can almost see, serve as a foundation for everything you've you've done since. So, you... You transferred to the UK when and what, how did, what, why did you do that? 
Well, before I made the decision to come to the UK, my dad gave me the option to say, I remember him vividly saying to me, listen, how far do you want to take your, your swimming? Um, and being the naive, ignorant child that I was, that, well, I want to go to the Olympics. I want to be the first Kenyan swimmer to, to, to go to the Olympics. Um, I wasn't, um, not that I'm bitter about that. Um, but he said, right, well, in that case, it's not going to happen when you're in Kenya. You need to, you need to go to the U.S., um, my sister was living in the US at, at the time, or she still does. And so I spent a brief six month period in, in the US, basically training full time. And I don't mind admitting that the first day I arrived there and went to the club that I swam at, which was the Mission Viejo Narados, very well known swim club, produced multiple Olympic swimmers and Olympic champions. Um, it's probably the best decision I ever made in that it, I knew there on day one that I was never, ever going to make it as, as an elite uh, international swimmer. Um, and as difficult as that was for me to accept, I look back at it now and, and it, it, it was the most important thing to me because if ever I had, you know, uh, illusions of grandeur or that side of things, then um, that was when it got kind of beaten out of me and I had a, a sudden reality check that this is just not, this is not the sport for, for me. So... Um, I still carried on swimming for a few years after that, but but knowing that there was never going to be a, a future. And, you know, at the time, Kenya had no, and I think still to this day, has no <clears throat> funding stream for its 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 athletes. There's no lottery funding like what, you know, uh, British athletes get, and certainly no support uh, systems and, and structures. Um, so, yeah, I, I made the choice then to, to kind of um, uh, move to the UK, which is where my, my dad is from. So I'm, I'm, I'm British in that sense um, and went to Manchester Metropolitan University to do a, an undergraduate degree in, in sport and exercise science. How did you get that first contact with parasport? Because able-bodied swimming in Africa doesn't seem like the most obvious connection to Paralympic sport in the UK. Yeah, and 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 so you're right because um, I had I never had an intention to pursue a career in 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 para sport. Um, I was probably in the right place at the right time, or uh, it was it was very much accidental that that my career set off on on that path. And um, when I came towards the end of my undergraduate degree, um, like most people, I think at that point, I, I didn't really have uh, any idea what I wanted to do in terms of a of a profession or a career. At that time, in 2002, 2003, there were very, very few opportunities to, to be a, a practitioner. Um, certainly the EIS, as an example, I think probably had only just started there or, or didn't quite quite um, exist at that point. So um, long story short, um, Professor Vicky Toffrey, who is now at, at Loughborough, um, approached me because she used to be one of the, the lecturers at, at MMU. Um, and said to me, I've, I've got an opportunity that I need some, some help with. Um, I need some help in the lab with the GB wheelchair tennis team. Um, and I've got to be honest, I'd never heard of wheelchair tennis. I didn't really know much about the Paralympics and I certainly had very little understanding of, of, of disability. If anything, I was probably one of those people that thought, um, disability is only something that happens to other people. It will never happen to me or, or anyone else that, that I know. Um, and so I'm not sure. I'm not sure why Vicky decided to approach me and, and offer me that opportunity and, and to no one else. Um, and to this day, I still don't know why I said yes, because my immediate response was, I'm not interested in, in that. Um, but something told me to say yes. Um, and little did I know how critical that saying yes was at that moment in time, because it set me off on a, on a trajectory and a pathway that I didn't know it at the time, but has basically led to you know, me having, a, 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 in my view, a, a brilliant career from a personal point of view in, in terms of what I've 
um, experienced and, and be able to be part of over the last 20 years. Okay, so there wasn't any specific interest knocking on the door. I see what you're doing, Prof. Can you tell me more about this? It was literally an opportunity put on on a platter in front of you, yes or no, and you just thought, well, I'll go for it. I think so, and and I've I've thought about this a lot. And actually, one of these days, I probably I'll probably go and ask Vicky why she why she chose me. So I wouldn't say that I um I don't think I did too much to create the opportunity as much as I'd like to say that I did. Other than maybe I just had a good work ethic as as a student. I got my head down. I I showed an interest in in a, a wide variety of things. Um, I'd like to think I was polite, courteous, humble—all those kind of qualities that that I that I uh, admire in in other people. Um, and so, you know, if I was to, to hazard a guess at why Vicky would have chosen me, probably because she just recognised, um, you know, a, a, a person who was looking for for an opportunity and and someone who was sounds a bit cheesy, but I guess just a good human, a good human being. Um, and um, yeah, that's that's probably how I would I would view that. And so what were your initial impressions? Can you remember that moment when you first started to engage with disabled athletes, yeah. that disabled environment? What, how, what was your impression there and how did you integrate? I remember it clearly, Steve, because my overriding um, feeling was fear. I was terrified um, because um, I'm not sure I'd even spoken to a disabled person before that. Um, all the players that I was about to engage with were um, uh, wheelchair users and majority were spinal cord injury. Um, and spinal cord injury is probably one of the most complex um, uh, injuries that you or disabilities that you'll come across as a, as a practitioner anyway, because it, 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 it's uh, very nuanced. Um, and, and I remember the first time I met one of the players who came into the lab and, and I, I didn't quite know how to speak to them. You know, do I, do I crouch down to, to their level? Do I open the door for them? Do I, do I help them out the car? Do I help them with their bags? Um, all these questions, I just remember feeling way out of my comfort zone, way out of my depth. Um, because everything that I had learned in, as part of my degree, even though there was, um, a disability sport element to it, I just didn't feel that I was equipped with with the skill set or the knowledge to to deal with this new situation that I was in. Um, so yeah, fear was probably my overriding feeling. And and having spoken to other colleagues who've come into this world, I think that's quite a common feeling. Is just that I don't know what I'm doing here. You know, imposter syndrome. I've I've no idea. I'm way out of my depth. But what I did what I did see was that there was an opportunity now here for me, and and I needed to to. To, to nail it. And so what did that fear lead to? <clears throat> I think it, it just led to me um, asking questions. I wanted, I wanted to understand. Um, and again, I think a similar challenge for many people coming into, into parasport, you know, you, you assume that it's not the done thing to ask, you know, how does this work or how does that work when, you, when you're talking to a, to a para-athlete, particularly someone with a, with a spinal cord injury. Um, you can obviously see a lot of the physical um, manifestation of, of the disability, but um, there are things like, um, you know, bowel and bladder care and, and that type of thing that you, you don't see um, and um, pressure sores and, and, and those type of things that kind of are, are constant challenges for, for individuals in that situation, um, which have an impact on how you support those type of, uh, those type of athletes. So, um, really, I was just suddenly filled with this wanting to know 
more and and then it became really quite intriguing and and interesting to say well I you know I need to I need to read up about this I'm working with with athletes who have no thermoregulatory capability so if we're preparing them for the Paralympic Games this was Athens 2004 we know it's going to be be hot um, here now suddenly we have a risk to both performance and and health and well-being because of the environmental conditions and you know that's quite topical at the moment given given Tokyo being being the next game so um you know, even then we were looking at how to prepare athletes for, for heat and specifically spinal cord injured athletes and, and how to cool them pre, post and, and during uh, uh, competition. So that's just interesting. Just go back there to asking questions, listening, understanding. So seeking to to upgrade your knowledge, but also how you approach people. I mean, we, we saw on the BBC Sports Personality Tanny Gray Thompson getting her Lifetime Achievement Award. And society these days will will kick back quite hard about the accessibility of buildings, mm. availability of ramps, for example. But in the VT, she talked about her dad being horrified about being offered a ramp, mm. that she will cope and she will get on with mm. it and mm. make do without that ramp. And so that speaks to a very simple tension about how how that ramp is perceived yeah. whether somebody gets the help and support or whether they tough it out yeah i i think this is a fascinating area because um you know accessibility and you know ultimately what does accessibility mean it, it's inclusion right because if you build a building or something that doesn't factor in the multiple different types of access that people now need. It's not just about, you know, someone being in a wheelchair, but, you know, a mother or father pushing a baby in, in a pushchair. We've all been there and done it, trying to get to, into a building that doesn't have ramp access. It, it's, you know, it, it's not much fun. Um, and these things don't have to be complex things. You know, it just goes down to good design, good use of space within within a building. And so Athens... Paralympics, Beijing Paralympics, London Paralympics, Rio Paralympics. You've you've been there and done it through through that that time. What have you seen that's changed in the, the whole sphere? Um, yeah, and I've done a couple of winter games within that as as well. But I, I, so I remember vividly my first Paralympic Games in in Athens, and I, I wasn't really expecting to to go. And and I was an accredited member of of the team, still very new into my career in 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 para sport. Um, but I remember vividly one uh, sitting in day one in the village, sitting in the in the dining hall. And <clears throat> for anyone who's ever been in an Olympic or Paralympic village, the dining hall is just a, a phenomenal place. It's a great people watching uh, place. So I, I sat there. I was on my own, um, and it was probably the most humbling experience I've, I've I've ever had in my life because you have you know five thousand athletes coming and, and going, um, and you know we kind of forget that in in the UK. Um, we do actually have good accessibility and our athletes have access to, you know, modern wheelchairs, modern prosthetics, all these accessible aids that, that individuals with disability now need. And you forget that uh, athletes or individuals from less fortunate, you know, less well-developed countries don't. Um, so to see literally people coming in on skateboards and, you know, bits of broken bicycles, um, it, it, it was the most humbling experience I've, I've ever seen because you saw people of all shapes and sizes from all corners of the world with all sorts of uh, disabilities, some of which I'd never seen before. Um, and they were, they were just clearly making the most of an amazing opportunity that, that they all, that they all had. Um, so, so 
that was my very first exposure to, to Paralympic sport was just that, wow, like this is a whole different world that, that has, is clearly there, but not many people see it. And um, we fast forward now, I guess, from Athens to, to London. We've, the, the British team has, has always been a, a world-leading team in terms of, of parasport. But I think London, we all recognize, was probably a watershed moment in terms of how it captured the public, certainly the British public. And I know when I talk to international colleagues and counterparts, everybody remembers London for that this Paralympic sport is now here. It is now respected. It now has, you know, good TV coverage audience. You will remember the full stadiums that came off that and, and you know, the jubilation and the celebration of um, disability, if you like, that I think London represented. So I think that was transformational not just in the UK, but across the world in terms of how Paralympic sport was perceived um, and genuinely respected, I think, by people who watched it. So what we're hearing there is empty stadia or quieter stadia or, or, or Olympic stadia repurposed and used yeah. for, for Paralympic sport and the, the crowds just not being there previously. So it would have felt pretty echoey yeah. versus packed out Stadia that suddenly meant that Paralympians were received and welcomed and cheered at the same level as able-bodied athletes. Yeah, so so Athens, I think we all remember it was probably not finished in terms of the the buildings, and you know it was still felt like a bit of a building site. There was certainly for the Paralympic Games anyway, next to no um, spectator involvement. If anything, I I, I kind of got there a bit, you know feeling a bit not not sorry but I was, I was just really disappointed that there was no one there watching it you know here was the pinnacle of 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 sport for for those with, with disabilities and it just didn't feel like it was it was being recognized Beijing was a different um, situation because although there were people there you're not really sure what the motivation or the motive of of those people being there were they certainly didn't know what they were watching um and it was a strange it was a strange atmosphere strange environment london as we said was was completely different and and i remember one day one of the few afternoons i had off walking into the um olympic park during the paralympic games and i just couldn't move because there were so many people um all with their union jacks and and flags and you know not just union jacks but but other but but flags from other nations and it was a really really special moment to think Wow, you know, this is this the moment where you know Paralympic sport has has arrived and will now be recognised for you know for for what it is, um, and probably the most special moment for me of of London was um, when Johnny Peacock won his race at at, at you know his hundred metre uh, final. Um, I was in there in the stadium that night with my wife and and with my uh, daughter um, Evie, who's 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 turning nine today. In fact, her oh. birthday, ironically, um, she won't remember any of this, but. You know the the stadium was packed out. Um, those who watched it probably remember the crowd chanting, you know, peacock, 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 at, at, in the build up to the race. Um, and to for Johnny to do what he did was 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 phenomenal. And and as I was leading the, leaving the stadium, I was walking past young kids who didn't have disabilities who were still chanting his name. Um, so to to think that now here we have young kids growing up without disabilities who see an athlete with a disability as a role model, as a, as a hero, as we've all had those athletes in, in our time when we're growing up that you look up to, that was, that was pretty, pretty special. 
So what happened? What, what was the difference? You'd gone from empty stadia, nobody really interested, perhaps don't understand it, to packed out audiences, but then this, this level of acceptance. What, what can you, even if it's just your thoughts and observations, what are your opinions about why that occurred? What was the, what were the stepping stones or the, the catalysts for that change? It was just, just monumental difference. Uh, I think there's, there's obviously a number of different things here. You know, some will just be the evolution of the Paralympic movement and, you know, credit to, you already mentioned, you know, Tani and all the Paralympic athletes that kind of laid the foundation prior to Tani, you know, those pioneer, every, every, every movement needs a pioneer to, for it to become what it is. So, um, I think we owe a lot to, you know, the Paralympians of, of, of the past and, and, you know, all the work that, that those, um, men and women put in. Um, I think a couple of really significant things. The fact that it was a, a home games for, for, uh, the UK. Um, the fact that we come off a hugely successful Olympic Games, you know, literally a week before the, the Paralympic Games, um, many, many people will have applied for tickets and, and didn't get them during, during the Olympic Games because they were, they were oversubscribed. And I think that led to just a huge amount of interest in people wanting to be part of, of the Games in, in London. And they didn't really mind whether it was the Olympics or, or the Paralympics. So, um, I think we had, yeah, uh, celebrating the successes of the, those that, the, the uh, previous to, to London and then the huge public interest. And, and the other key moment, I think, was Channel 4's, um, approach to how they televised the games. I think those of us, when, when the BBC didn't get the rights for London and Channel 4 got it, uh, you know, being honest, I think most people thought, Oh God, that's, that's a disaster. How can it not be on, on the BBC? Um, and, I'm sure many of many people would have watched the, the last leg and just the way that Channel 4 approached disability sport. They made it modern. They made it sexy. They made it okay to laugh about Paralympic sport or, or not necessarily Paralympic sport, but to, to kind of see the funny side of, of, of disability. Um, and it almost became okay to, to, to talk about it. I think, you know, one of their, their kind of taglines was, is, is it okay? Is it okay to ask, you know, this and that? Or is it okay that I've just, you know, thought thought about this? Um, and I remember watching that during the, the games thinking, that's amazing that they've been able to, to make it such a topical conversation. And as much as I hate the term, like just normalize talking about, about disability. Um, and then to have, you know, your Dave Weirs, your Johnny Peacocks, your, your Ellie Simmons, these kind of, you know, young articulate athletes just doing what they do really well and, and the public warming to them, you know, they became household names almost almost overnight um and so i think the momentum from london uh flowed through into into rio even though we were probably a bit unsure how 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 rio would respond to the paralympic games um but you know credit to them amidst a very challenging build-up to the games and, and some of the financial um constraints that they were faced with um uh, you know brazil did an amazing job hosting the the games and <clears throat> as we know from I think it was last week or two weeks ago that all the tickets for the Paralympics in, in Tokyo are sold out already, oversubscribed by over a million, a million tickets. So, you know, just phenomenal. I remember that advert that Channel 4 put together, the superhumans. And I get goosebumps just remembering it uh, about how powerful that was because it just seemed to do such a complete job in conveying the power of Paralympic sport. Mm. I think that 
previously when I've ever tuned in, and this is only a personal experience, I've tuned in because I love sport and I love watching people perform, but I just haven't been able to understand Mm. it. And there seems to be a fusion in that promotional advert of we can perform. We can perform at the highest level, watch our abilities, but also we're doing that under conditions of adversity, of everyday, day-to-day load and demand of being disabled, stunt care, getting in and out of your chair, learning to walk, whether it's uh, rehabilitating from a a military accident, Mm. whatever it might be, that we can do both. And, and, we're superhuman because of that. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, the, the narrative that typically follows the Paralympic athlete is that one, you know, triumph against adversity. And, and you know, you, you, you can look at a Paralympic athlete, regardless of their impairment, and you can have a certain level of admiration because you know that individual has been through a difficult period. And, you know, we've all been through difficult periods. It doesn't necessarily have to be linked to, to having a, a, a life-changing um, injury or, or, or disability, but... Um, I think that's that's kind of the typical narrative that you see that follows the Paralympic Games. But I, I sense that that is shifting slightly. Um, and I know that almost all the Paralympic athletes that, that I speak to would prefer to be seen for to be seen as an athlete rather than, oh, isn't it brave? Isn't it isn't it wonderful that they do? And, and, and I think they're uncomfortable with the idea that they kind of, um, you know, give inspiration to, to others because, um, you know, I, I don't have a disability, but when you are faced with that type of situation, um, what else do you expect people to, to do? I mean, I guess some people can, can go into a, uh, uh, you know, withdraw and go into a very a dark place, but, but at some point you just have to accept that that is, this is, this is now my world and, and embrace it. And, um, I know you had Dave, uh, Smith as part of your podcast a couple of weeks ago. I think Dave was, a, you know, a great example of, um, of, of that. Um, so I think moving forward into the new era of, of Paralympic sport, where we're starting now to see performances that I think really question, you know, what is what does it mean to be disabled? And I think we don't have we go back to the days of, of Oscar Pistorius and, you know, he probably was one of the key instigators of that conversation of, gosh, we now have athletes with disabilities who are, you know, running similar times. Um, whether or not the the technology uh, has, has an impact, let's not go into right now. But suddenly, it it, it caused a, a bit of a, a conversation as to what, what does it mean to be disabled. And you know, some people saying he should be allowed to race against those without blades, and others saying that that he shouldn't. Um, but what that was doing was just, I think, creating healthy conversation because people now saw disability in a very different light. Um, and there's a German long jumper at the moment, Marcus Rem, who's a who's a transtibial amputee, baloney amputee. Think a couple of weeks ago, he just jumped eight meter fifty in the long jump. Now, eight meter fifty in the long jump puts you in medal contention for the Olympic Games, not just the the Paralympic Games. Um, so, yes, we can argue whether it's you know the blade provides an, an, an assistive um, uh, uh, assist is assist, assistive or not. Um, but again, it's just good healthy conversation because I think we now can recognise that oh, that's that's a good. Performance, and I think to your point, when when spectators are watching para sports, um, and I think even those in para sport, it's not always easy to determine is the performance that I've just seen a really good performance because I don't know, I don't understand classification and and that side of things. So it, it's 
it's a bit more complex to, to understand and engage with than the non-disabled sport in that respect. So a little bit like the last leg, is it okay? Yeah. Is it okay to ask if Marcus Rem takes off on yeah. his amputee, on his uh, prosthetic yeah. leg? Is that, it yeah, yeah, does, yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, I think I was talking to Steph um, Reed, uh, bumped into her in, in Loughborough just the other day, and, and we were having this conversation. Steph is, is a long jumper as well and, and uh, jumps off, uh, off her, her blade as well. Um, and Steph phrased it really nicely, and it's like we shouldn't really be comparing one against the other. We should just acknowledge that one is, is different. Um, and different doesn't necessarily mean mean bad, um, but um, let's just celebrate the fact that you know we we can do this. Um, and uh, I thought because when you look at the force profile and the mechanics of it, it, it is different. Um, so my personal view is I, I don't think we should have blade jumpers jumping against um, uh, non-disabled athletes in in the Olympic Games, as an example. Um, but that's not necessarily the the point. I don't think. So just to your point about um, Paralympians hoping and shifting the emphasis to look at, look at us as an athlete, not necessarily a disabled athlete, and we're responding to adversity and aren't we doing well, is that, is that amplified for the Invictus Games where you've got, or for Paralympics, you've got performance against adversity, whereas Invictus, you've got para performance against adversity and we are have we have been in service we've been we've been in harm's way we've been protecting and serving a country and there's a triple whammy there um does that amplify that even further yeah i think um you know in in victus obviously is um got huge um profile with it given you know prince harry's involvement and and all the rest of it and and absolutely rightly so because um, you know, it wasn't that long ago, I don't think, where um, we perhaps weren't doing enough for, for those that had served the country and who had, you know, suffered life-changing injuries, whether they be physical or, or, or mental. Um, I think the really strong thing around Invictus Games is is how they are supporting those with, with you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and you know, let's not forget that the, the, the whole reason that we have the Paralympic Games now, if you go back to, to the 40s with, with uh, Professor Ludwig Gutmann, down at Stoke Mandeville Hospital in, in, in Aylesbury, he, he was visionary. He recognized the role that sport had to play in rehabilitating people with severe uh, physical and, and, and mental injuries from, from war. Um, and so we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that the link with the military still still exists. And, and you know, we all know how powerful sport is in bringing people together, but also to give people opportunity to, to you know... L- take their lives in, in, in a new direction. It, it's, not, it's not untypical to hear Paralympic athletes say the best thing that ever happened to me was becoming injured or becoming disabled. And that sounds like a really strange thing to say, but I think what they mean when they say that is that it's, it's given them that kind of slap around the face to, to recognize how valuable life is and how fragile it is. But more importantly, it's opened up a world of, of opportunity for them that they may not have, have had and um, many of them, as we know, if you go on to embrace that opportunity, um, you know, you, you go on and see some, some amazing things. But it's not just acceptance by society, is it really? I and mean, it, it's, it's almost done a different job as well of acceptance and self-worth of other disabled people. 
Um, I'm just thinking about Lost Voice Guy and, and his T-shirt of saying, I was disabled before it was cool. Yeah. And how amazing that would be to young, old, disabled people who live their lives or anticipating their lives ahead of hardship and, yeah. and feeling excluded. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes this goes, uh, you know, I hear two sides to this argument because I think sometimes those with disabilities who aren't um, sporty uh, almost find it off-putting, this notion that we suddenly have, you know, these superhumans doing these, these wonderful things, but they don't necessarily relate to that. Um, and maybe that's no different to, you know, how much someone can re- relate to a Usain uh, Bolt, you know, being a, a, a phenomenal athlete that, that he is. Um, so, yeah, sometimes I hear the opposite of, of, of that argument. But, um, you know, for me, people question, you know, through the surveys that have been done, what was the legacy of, of the Paralympic Games? Did it have a long lasting legacy? My view is without, you know, having, quoting any stats from you from a survey, it, it absolutely did. Um, what exactly what that, that was is really hard to, to put your, your finger on it. But I've spoken to many people who the reason they are now doing sport or Paralympic sport is because they watched London 2012 and did relate to what they saw on the television and thought that person has the same disability as me or something very similar. I didn't even know that I could do, you know, sitting volleyball or wheelchair basketball or botcher or whatever it was. And, and then have gone and pursued that, that, that opportunity. So, Okay, so that, that speaks to this idea that, of, of saying that the legacy is only going to show up in mass participation versus actually recognising that the legacy for every future Olympian, Paralympian will, be, will have a role model, someone vicarious that they can look to and say, I want to be like that. So there's a propellant there for somebody to go and, um, and see if they can do it too. Yeah. And, you know, should we really expect one, a one-off single event to completely transform and overnight, you know, make the world a better place for, for people with disabilities? Absolutely not. Can it, can it go some way to achieving that in the future? Absolutely yes. So I think, you know, if, if we were to have the London Games again, you know, what would we do differently? Maybe we would have more opportunities immediately off the back of the games for people who wanted to get involved to, you know, to, to then get involved. Um, but yeah, the Paralympic Games alone are not going to suddenly transform that side of things. But what they do offer is, you know, once every four years um, or, or, or every other every two years, if you include the Winter Games, an amazing platform where suddenly disability becomes a talking point, a topical point, good news stories and we all know the power of that that kind of um, Paralympic Games in, in, in being able to inspire people with and without disabilities. So if you think about where Paralympic sport is now and that it's big ticket, it can sell out stadia, you've got Johnny Peacock and Will Bailey appearing toe-to-toe mm. or with, with other superstars on Strictly Come Dancing. I mean, how incredible is that as a transformation of acceptance that... That's on a prime time, most popular TV show in in Britain. Um, but can you tell me about where it's stuck for you? Because if you've been, if you've had this opportunity put on the table from Vicky Tolfrey, get involved, and then you've been whisked to a Paralympic Games. But wheelchair tennis at, at the Athens Games was still pretty low key. What was it about? 
para sport that's stuck with you. You've had those wow moments in the in the um, food halls and so on. But what is it that made you go? You know what? This means something to me, mm. and and this is becoming part of of my future career. Really good question, Steve. And I've thought about this a lot because <clears throat> um, I don't mind saying that probably in my first two to three years of working in Paralympic sport, I probably didn't feel like it was for me. Um, it, it was great. I enjoyed it, but I, I, I didn't see it as a, as, a, as a future career. And I don't think I had fallen in love with it necessarily. Um, and it's hard for me to give you a precise moment when, when suddenly I did say, right, this is amazing. I want to be a, a part of it. But I think as I've grown, you know, matured in myself and, you know, I guess, you know, had children and, and I, you know, you see the world from a, a different place and, and you kind of ask, what do each and every one of us do in a day-to-day basis to make the world a, a better place? What, how are we adding value to society? Um, you know, this is now getting quite deep and meaningful, but how, how am I, you know, making the world a better place for, for, for my children and bringing my children up in a way that they respect diversity and, and, and that side of things. And um, I think for me, I've had a slow, um, I guess, acceptance of the fact that disability isn't something that only happens to other people. So I think probably about three or four years into my Paralympic career, I, I kind of had that realization that, my goodness, all these athletes that I'm working with or that I meet, the way in which they became disabled was not because they were bad people or that they did something wrong. Um, okay, yes, if you're going to you know, serve your country and be involved in, in war, you kind of probably accept that that is you know, something that could happen. Um, but nobody accepts to be walking down the street one day and a billboard blows over in the wind and severs your spinal cord. Um, nobody expects what, you know, the Dave Smith story that you suddenly have a, a, a tumor growing around your spinal cord that leaves you with a, with a spinal injury. Um, so I think the way I've come to look at this is that, you know, disability is not abnormal. It is actually a very normal thing. And at some point, we will probably all develop some sort of, of disability, whether that's through an aging process or heaven forbid, um, you know, I could get knocked off my bike tomorrow and, and have a, a disability or um, uh, my children could get disabled or my wife could get disabled. It It, it is just a part of, of life. And I think once I had that acceptance and recognized that, do you know what, the world needs Paralympic sport because disability is a normal thing. There are millions, if not billions, of disabled people across uh, the world. Uh, and for so long, those people have not had the same opportunities that those without disabilities have had. We've come a long way in the UK in, in, that, in that space, but the, op- the opportunities are still not the same. And why should they not be the same? Um, so, so I think for me, I kind of get this warm, fuzzy feeling, if, if you want to call it that, that, you know, the work that I do or what I've been involved with in, in terms of, of helping athletes or create opportunities for athletes that maybe otherwise would not have been there. And, and in doing so, um, you know, just helping, helping other, other people. I think that's, that's when I really fell in love with, with Paralympic sport, when I realized that actually it's making a difference to the world because it, the power it has to inspire um, and I had, you know, opportunities in the past to get off the Paralympic bandwagon and go down an, an, a non-parasport uh, route. Um, and I'm just not sure I would have the same passion for it because 
it, it doesn't seem to have that human emotive element that, that parasport has, for me, in my personal opinion, anyway. So I'm hearing there a mix of fairness, supporting and treating the individual uh, with respect and, and the honour that they're due, but also trying to make the world a better place by acceptance and integration into society and, and supporting that. And so, you know, if we talk about, you know, whether we're in a, a, a noble profession when we take ourselves very serious in this world of elite sport that, that we've all been, been working in. And um, so my wife's a teacher um, and it's probably hard to get a more noble profession than, than a teacher. And, and I see how hard she works and, and how much she cares about, genuinely cares about the, the kids that she's, she's supporting. Um, and again, we've all, we can all look back when we were kids and had that kind of really inspirational teacher that, that kind of, uh, you looked up to and, and, you know, you admired and, and created opportunities for you and helped shape you as, as a person. So teaching as a profession, you know, brilliant. Both my parents were, were, were teachers. Um, and then without going into too much detail, having spent some time in hospital with, with, uh, my daughter when she had nephrotic syndrome, um, and being in the ward with her one one night and watching the nurses do their thing, just being struck with that sudden realization of, oh my God, what what am I doing to help this situation? I'm powerless here. I've give all my trust to you know NHS and, and the amazing nurses that do that, probably un, underpaid, overworked, um, and then here I am just with this career in in elite sport like that that doesn't seem to be making much of a contribution to, to society. But when I, when I delve into it deeper and we go back to what I just said around the contribution that Paralympic sport makes to society is that I think it has a huge powerful effect in being able to, to give disabled people a, a platform and, and bring genuine changes, both physical and cultural changes to, to, to countries that maybe didn't have that before. So give us a bit of a rundown. Let's assume that, that 99% of anyone tuning in today understands, gets it, uh, has full appreciation and is a fan of Paralympic sport. But if there's 1% that, that haven't yet, give us a rundown of any examples of performance that are extraordinary, but also understanding the different types of, of disability that you might in- and see as a spectator yeah. so that people can better understand it. Yeah. So, so I think that the first rule I'll say to, to people is, is, is try to avoid the temptation to draw a comparison between a Paralympic performance and the non-disabled version of it. So when you see Usain Bolt's world record of 958 or whatever it is, try not to immediately use that as your reference point to when you're watching um, a, a T38 athlete doing a 100-meter sprinting don't say, oh, well, he's run four seconds slower, therefore he or she is not a, a very good athlete. Like that, that's not the point. I think, you know, Paralympic sport is not trying to be like Olympic sport. It's, it's something very, very different. Um, and I think the sport that most people find, the sports that most people find most challenging to, to engage with are those sports where you see athletes with different types of impairments competing against each other. Um, you know, swimming is, is often a, a, a typical one for that, where it, it's very hard as a layperson to say, well, how can someone with no arms be the same as someone with, with, with no legs or, you know, if, if, if they're in the same, if they're in the same class? Um, so I think you uh, recognize and appreciate 
how much effort those athletes have put in in terms of, of their training. They train just as hard and as long and have the same support staff as, as what Olympic athletes will be. So there's a huge team of people supporting the athletes, I think, recognize that. Um, and then there's some sports where you you maybe could draw a parallel. So the one that that stands out to me, which is I saw with my very own eyes and is probably the single most impressive feat I think I've ever seen of any human being, is um, uh, Iranian powerlifter called Siamand Rahman, who is the world record holder for the plus 107 kilo powerlifting event. So he's, he's a big unit. You can check him out on, on, on YouTube. But in, in Rio, I went to watch the, the final of the powerlifting event. And there I saw a man, a disabled man, bench pressing 310 kilograms. Now, Everyone can relate to doing some sort of a, a, a bench press, and you know we we would all probably struggle to do anything more than than body weight. Um, here you have a human being with a disability bench pressing three hundred and ten kilograms, and um, what makes it even more impressive in powerlifting, without going into too much detail, lying on a flat bench. So um, I don't know his exact disability. It looks something like like polio. So he he does have legs, but but obviously they they don't work. <clears throat> And lying flat on a bench to bench press 310 kilograms is just impressive because the bar is literally bending and um, it is a, a, a huge, hugely impressive feat for, you know, pound for pound, disabled or not, that is that is something to, to behold. So I know this because I can convert white goods to kilograms. That's equivalent to an American-style fridge and a tumble dryer, <laughs> and probably a, a vacuum cleaner yeah. on top. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah and, and you know the, the best thing about that night in, in, in Rio was the the crowd was packed. Um, they were boisterous. It was you know all these big strong men coming out, just you know lifting huge huge amounts of of, of weight. Um, and the nice thing about powerlifting as a sport is that classification is purely weight based, so it doesn't. It's not dependent on the type of disability you have, like in, in some of the other Paralympic sports. So you're either eligible or you're not eligible. And once you're eligible, you just go in, in a weight class. So as a spectator, you're not sat there thinking, well, how is that person the same as, as, as the other person? You know, it's just pound for pound. And you almost could draw parallels with, you know, with, with, with able-bodied powerlifting. And these guys have no suits on. The, the, the nature of the lift is very, very technical. Very, It has to be very controlled Lift. So I'm sure he could bench press more than 310 kilograms if, if he wanted to. But from a technical perspective, the judges would give him three, three red lights. Um, and then we mentioned, obviously, Marcus Rem as, as the, the long jumper who's, who's jumping in excess of, of eight, eight, regularly jumping in excess of eight meter 40. Um, and I think very interestingly, a couple of weeks ago at the World Parathletics Championships in, in Dubai, um, forget the name of the individual that escaped me for the minute, but a German bilateral amputee in a hundred meters ran 10.52, um, which when you consider those with bilateral amputations find it very, very difficult to start. They can't necessarily do a crouch start and they're very slow out of the blocks. To run 10.52 when you're losing so much time from, from the start is um, quite staggering, to be honest. Um, you know, I don't know what that, how would that then convert into a, a 200 and potentially a 400. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised, Steve, if we are now back into that realm of the old Oscar Pistorius um, debate, but we now have athletes that, no disrespect to Pistorius, are 
much better quality athletes, maybe more naturally um, uh, suited to those type of events with blades that obviously um, do have an advantage, let's let's be honest. And maybe we will start to see 100, 200, 400 meter times that are better than uh, able-bodied athletes running without without blades. Um, so the argument shouldn't be should they run with them or should they shouldn't be. But how cool would it be when the Paralympic performances are quicker than the Olympic performances or further or longer or stronger? Okay, so for example, at mar- able-bodied marathon performance now, it's a case of now that Kipchoge's knocked down the, the two-hour marathon barrier, people are breaking PBs left, right and centre for, for marathon. National records are starting to go, to which the question comes immediately, were they wearing the shoes? which is a bit like back to your sport in 2008 where the skin suits were changing the game and they had to do a reset. What's the future there for parasport? Is it technological regulation or it's just or every man to himself and that ultimately that becomes a, a, a war in itself of, of technological doping or cheating yeah. or getting an advantage? If you've got the resources then it's going to separate the the big investment sport the big investment nations versus the ones that haven't got anything yeah uh, a couple of interesting things here i think one um to the best of my knowledge i'm not sure we have yet seen a pure endurance athlete take another another bilateral amputee as an example run a marathon i'm intrigued to know how quickly they would if you took without wanting to stereotype but you know if there ever an east african runner emerged who was just had the innate ability to run fast for long periods of time like the Kenyans and Ethiopians do, um, but they happen to be a bilateral amputee running on two blades, how quick could how quick could they run? Um who, who knows? But I dare say it'll it'll be it'll be pretty darn quick. So so I'm I'm not in favor of regulating the the equipment. And I think it's the same argue, argument for, you know, cycling, sailing, rowing, any sport that requires, you know, technological ad- advancement is that the the value in the technology advancing is that it it then can be used in other walks of, of life. So if we have wheelchairs that are faster, lighter, stronger, cheaper, then, you know, that's a good thing. If we have prosthetics that, that are you know, better suited to the individual that fit better, that are more effective, more efficient. Then, then why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we do that? Um, and so, for me, I'm I'm a big fan of the technology continuing to to improve. You know, we all know that the you know how much technology from the, the NASA space missions, etc., comes into everyday life. And and I think this is this is no this is no different. Um, you know, I think. The concept of everyone running off, you know, the same type of blade is—it's it, it, kind of romantic in this, in the sense that you say, well, everyone's on 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 a le- on a level playing field. But I'm just not sure what good that serves in terms of future development of of technology and the fact that you know we want to see people run fast. So we're in Paralympic year. I was going to say Olympic here then, but you have to do that corrective piece. I know you you are very keen on saying thanks for doing the warm up test event. The Olympics is now over. <laughs> yeah. Now the now the main stage happens. What are the challenges ahead for Tokyo, and how are you going to help navigate that for the athletes ahead? Mm. So I think um, there's two two key bits to this. I think um, I've been saying for 
ever since Tokyo was was announced, um, it will be the most challenging environment that a Paralympic team has has ever been to, and probably for the Olympic teams as well, just because of the nature of the heat and the the humidity, um, the risk of typhoons and, and and adverse weather. And I think the summer just gone and the summer before that clearly showed what a challenging environment it is. You know, triathlon events being shortened or turned to duathlon, water quality issues. Um, so I think that's that's one thing. Um, having said that, I think that the fact that there is such good support for para-athletes in the British system and support through EIS and what the NGBs are doing, I'm pretty confident the British team will be the best prepared team at the Paralympic Games in, in Tokyo. And a huge amount of work has been going on to prepare both athletes and staff for, for that environment. Um, I think away from the sport itself, and it affords Japan as a, as a society an unbelievable opportunity to recalibrate um, how Japanese society sees people with with disabilities. Um, I think certainly in all the recce's that I've been on in 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 Japan up until this point, um, I think it's fair to say that um, Japan has some work to do in terms of its its accessibility, particularly around private ventures like like hotels and what an accessible um, room looks like. I think in terms of the language that's used around um, disabled uh, people. Um, and so what I would really hope is that um, Japan grasps the opportunity that it now has in the same way that other countries have in, in the past of hosting the games. Um, I think the mayor of Tokyo herself actually said that she feels that the legacy that the Paralympic Games will leave in Tokyo is probably a stronger legacy than than the Olympic Games will will leave because they recognize they have an aging society likely to have more a higher proportion of disabled people going forward as a result of that aging society and therefore if the games can transform how people with disability are viewed and the environment in which they're in is is more inclusive integrated accessible that's a good thing so you talk there about more work to be done and ultimately you've been a you've been a, a driver and an observer of societal change around disabled sport, what more needs to be done? I mean, if you could have a magic wand to look to the future, what would what magic wand's a bit, bit of code for basically you're going to have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what would you like to see? Um, what would be your hopes and ambitions? Yeah, I, th- I think what's interesting is as much as Paralympic sport has, has, has moved on and, and, you know, people now know it and we have household names, you know, that are, that are Paralympic athletes, and we've got, you know, Will Bailey and Johnny Peacock and, and Lauren Stedman on Strictly Come Dancing. Brilliant. But if we go back to what athletes want to do, they want to compete like that's what they want to do. And, and unfortunately, still in, in Paralympic sport, we have outside of the Paralympic Games that once every four years, um, there isn't really much of a platform for, for parasport. If you go to a single sport world championships, um, a Paris parasport world championships and look at the crowds and the spectators, it's it's sparse um and i think we also have a challenge of not enough international competitions between the four in the four-year cycle big competitions for para athletes to compete so the paralympic games comes around once every four years and it's like this big one-off event it suddenly feels so unique and, and novel because in the in the three and a bit years leading up to that there's there's sparse competition so i'd like to think that international federations can do a lot more to have more competition opportunities for, for para sports. Um, and what I would actually really like to see 
is um, we talk about the concept of, of integration. Um, and so we'll have a number of sports that have world championships that have both the, the para and the non-para element all in the same event, uh, rowing as, as an example. Um, but I wonder if what we might start to see going forward when we, when we become more clued into integration is genuine integration in the fact that we now have men's and women's mixed relays in athletics and in swimming. Why can we not have integration in the form of para-athletes and non-para-athletes competing together in a mixed relay or as a pair or as, as a quad. Um, and that's not such a novel concept because if you take track cycling or, or running for those with vision impairment, you have a sighted pilot or guide and an athlete with a, with a vision impairment running as a, as, a, as a pair. And both are recognized as, as athletes and both athletes receive a medal. So the model already exists, but it exists in a, in a para-sport context. And I wonder when, at what point, we might start to see Botcher as an example, where you have a non-disabled player p- playing in a team with with a disabled player, and that being, you know, a, an international type type format. So people often talk about, oh, should the Olympics and Paralympics be be integrated? Um, and I think there's all sorts of reasons why I don't think that will happen or, or, or should happen. But I'd like to think that outside of the Olympic and Paralympic um, festivals, we would have more competitions throughout the year where there's genuine integration of of people playing uh, sport together with and without disabilities. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting concept. So it's not just a case of here's the able body 100 metres now, here's T44 yeah. 100 metres. It's a case of here's the relay with mixed mixed abilities in one. Yeah, so, you know, Diamond League or, um, you know, ISL, this, the new swimming format, why can we not have, you know, that that type of, uh, of, of format? So... Um, the other thing I think that Parasport needs to be really cautious of is in this age where fans want to consume things at a very rapid, high energy pace, 2020 cricket, you know, you look at all the new formats of sport that are coming out. I wonder how Parasport will continue to evolve and make sure it stays current. Um, and I do feel that maybe that's a gap at the moment in terms of it. If you're not on TV, as we all know, there's less interest, there's less sponsorship. And if if getting on TV means you have to appeal to what people now want to watch from a sport point of view, how do you rejig the format so that it doesn't become a you know just some fancy uh, spectacle or something, but that it it keeps current and it 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 moves with the times? And I just wonder whether. Parasport, in some cases, has been a bit slow to, to to move with the trend of where sport is now going. Okay, so so fantastic, really interesting vision there of of what the the future might uh, go. So, Nick, just want to say thanks. You know, all the best conversations that that we have is where I'm asking you big, broad questions and and letting you do the talking, especially when I'm trying to keep up with you on the on the bike. So, but but also, congrats. Few people have had such a, a big an influence on Paralympic sport, but also supporting those people to take the moments so that it it made a real difference. So thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. Now, if you'd like to follow Nick more, then you can do so on Twitter at Nick underscore diaper. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs and me at Ingham underscore Steve. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram under Supporting Champions 
and subscribe through the website for the latest updates. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, that'd be amazing if you can leave a review on iTunes.